0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let's turn now to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. That's right there in the middle of the minor prophets tucked in between Nahum and Zephaniah. If you're, if you're turning to or as you're turning there, uh, I want to ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer this question out loud. I want you to think about it, ponder it, and give an answer in your own mind, perhaps even jot it down in your notes. And at the end, or towards the later parts of the sermon, I'm going to let you know if you got it right. There once was a man... "...who was incredibly self-righteous. He was an incredibly religious man. His peers acknowledged him to be a very knowledgeable and outwardly good person." But this person was a sinner who was in desperate need of the grace of God. And God did give him grace. God saved him. And God used him in incredible ways to purify and to grow God's kingdom. And this little phrase that we find in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says the righteous shall live by his faith, became the centerpiece of this man's theology. His entire system of belief, his entire doctrine was centered around this core idea so don't answer out loud but let's see if you know who i'm talking about join me in the text this morning beginning in habakkuk 2 2 and hear what is written and the lord answered me write the vision make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it for still the vision awaits its appointed time it hastens to the end it will not lie if it seems slow wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Our sovereign God in heaven, we come before you today recognizing that we are weak recognizing that we are desperate, recognizing that we have a thirst in our soul that can only be quenched by you. And Father, today we pray that you would please give us more of Jesus Christ through what we are finding today in the Scriptures, that you would give us a clearer understanding, that you would allow us to have a better uh, commitment to the Word, to the Christian life because of what we are learning. God, we pray that you would please help us to see what we have already received, that Christ has given us everything. In Him, Lord, I ask that as we consider this text that is so beautiful and so precious and so central to the gospel, that you would please help us today to have a better understanding of what it is that we have believed and what it, what it means that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that today, if there is anyone here who does not know you in a saving way, God, please let this be the day of salvation for them. Open their eyes, we plead with you, God, so that they might see the excellencies of Christ and repent and believe. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Um, recently, I was drawn to an internet live spring live stream. I don't know if any of you do this. I know last year there was like the April the Giraffe thing. I should have learned my lesson from how long it took for that baby to be born. Um, but this time, I was drawn into a live stream of the blooming of a flower. Not just any flower, though. It's a specific kind of flower that only blooms once every 10 to 17 years, and they decided it's about to bloom, so they put a live stream up for the world to see. This particular flower had been growing for over a decade in Arizona, and it was finally ready to open. It was finally ready to reveal its petals to the world. I'm just curious. Did anybody else see this? Am I the only person that's that nerdy in this room? That's fine. <clears throat> As I was following this, small internet phenomenon, awaiting the glorious beauty of this exotic flower to finally open up. I looked up some information about this particular variety of plant, and here's the description that I found. It's a long word, pardon me if I butcher it. Amorphophallus titanum, also known as the titan arum, which is the word I'm going to use from now on, is the flowering plant with the largest unbranched inflorescence in the world. The titan arum is classified as a carrion flower due to the odor that emanates from it. Before blooming, it fills the air with the scent of rotting fruit. But upon opening, the titan arum produces an intensely revolting and putrid scent that is most comparable to a mound of decomposing rat flesh in order to attract pollinators that are accustomed to laying their eggs in rotting meat. Thus, it is aptly referred to by many as the corpse flower or the carcass blossom. Needless to say, after reading that definition, I was very happy that I was viewing this through the lens of a computer monitor rather than in person. Now, last week I preached about Habakkuk chapter 2. We covered the entirety of the chapter, the end of chapter 1, the entirety of chapter 2, and I just explained the bones of the chapter. But today we're going to consider its heart. The phrase that we're going to be focusing on is the second part of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says, The righteous shall live by his faith. This little tiny phrase is like a very slow, blossoming flower. But when the meaning is finally fleshed out in the New Testament, it does not produce a putrid rat smell. Rather, it produces something incredibly important it reveals to us that this tiny phrase is actually the center of the gospel. So what we're going to do in our time together today is very simple. We're going to examine the early stages of this phrase as it would have been understood by Habakkuk during his time, But then we're going to jump forward down the timeline and see how seemingly this small truth would eventually bloom into something much more beautiful. We'll see how God made the gospel clear in a very small way, in, in a very concealed way to Habakkuk, but then he reveals it later in the New Testament. So if you like to have a logical breakdown or a direction of where we're heading, we're simply going to examine this phrase in the four places that it's found in the Bible. First, here in its context in Habakkuk, where God first speaks it. Then we'll see how it's quoted in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, then in Galatians, and then in Hebrews, and see how it, it blooms even farther for us. Let's, by, let's begin by conce- uh, considering here how this phrase is being used within the confines of Habakkuk. What does it mean to him? How would he understand it? I think the best way to go about that is to begin by ensuring that we are all on the exact same page here about what are the meanings of each of the words used in this phrase. Now, God tells Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. What does he mean by the righteous? Righteous here is being used to define or describe a specific kind of person, a subset of humanity that is not all of the people, but is the righteous kind of person. And the righteous person is also sometimes called the just person in the Old or New Testament. And it appears that Habakkuk has a misunderstanding about what a righteous person actually is. In his second question, back in chapter 1, you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 13, he asked God this. He said, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Do you see the mistake here? He is using a sliding scale of comparative good. The man more righteous than he? In other words, Habakkuk recognizes that he and his compatriots are not perfect. They are not absolutely pure, but they're better than those guys. And in worldly terms, he's correct. From a worldly perspective, he is better, just like I would be considered better than Adolf Hitler. And so would you, I hope. On a human level, they are better people. But they're better people because they're not as wicked outwardly. But Habakkuk seemed to misunderstand in chapter 1 that God does not grade on a curve. This is something that will become much more clear when Habakkuk 2.4 blossoms in the New Testament. The next word that we need to focus on here is shall. The righteous shall live by his faith. This indicates that it's not optional. It does not say he can live by his faith or that he might live by his faith. God declares in no uncertain terms that the righteous shall live by faith. This is not up for debate. All of those who meet the criteria of righteous will be those who live, and they will live by means of their faith. There is no doubt. Whenever God says, shall, it comes to pass. But what does live mean here? The righteous shall live. Live has a very big range of words that it could mean in the Bible. right? It could mean that you're spared from being executed. Uh, It could mean that you have abundance here what does it mean live here i think has a really specific meaning that if we understand it goes a long way in helping us to understand what this phrase really means if we don't understand this one word i don't think we have any hope of understand understanding how this is being used for us in the bible now remember what's happening in the book habakkuk has called out to god and he says look everything is terrible jehoiakim's the king now he's executing the prophets This guy is crazy. Life is difficult for the people who are following God. What are you going to do about this, God? How long, O Lord? And God's response to him is, if you think it's bad now, just wait. It's going to get much worse. I'm sending the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk responded based upon what he knew to be true of God in a second question. And he says in Habakkuk 1.12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? And then he, he says what he knows to be true based upon the promises of God. We shall not die. Now, God has promised his wrath is coming. It's on its way. And Habakkuk stands in faith, holding on to the promise of God and says, We shall not die. He was trusting that God would preserve his people. Even though the wrath of God was coming, God's people would survive. So the word live here is to be understood like this. The people who are called righteous will not experience the wrath of God. That's what live means. The people who are righteous will not experience the wrath of God. So as we move through all of the examples of this phrase, as it is going to be repeated in the New Testament, you'll notice that it always stands up against the backdrop of judgment, against the backdrop of wrath. A flashlight has basically no power if you take it outside in the sunlight and flash it around. Nobody even notices that you're shining it on them. But if you take the same flashlight and you put it down into a dark basement and flash it around, it can almost blind somebody. So we need to understand here what the word live means. This word is hope. It equals freedom from the fury of creator God who is so powerful that he spoke and everything came into existence. When we begin to grasp our infinitude in front of his finitude, how small we are in front of his grandeur, we will begin to see that the rescue from his wrath is life indeed. And finally, we consider the words, by faith, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now let's begin by noting that anytime you see the phrase by faith in the Bible, it is removing credit From the individual, and it is putting credit on God. I've never been to a Hall of Fame before. I would love to go to the Basketball Hall of Fame someday. I assume that it's basically like a museum filled with pictures and artifacts and memorabilia of all the great basketball players throughout history, like. Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain. And I assume that there are little glass cases and cabinets that are lining the walls that are essentially like little shrines to these people who have been the best men and women who have dominated the sport of basketball. This is one of the reasons why I'm a little bit uncomfortable with calling Hebrews chapter 11 the hall of faith. That's what many people call it. Hebrews 11 contains many short stories of Old Testament heroes. But it's not intended to be like a hall of fame. We're not supposed to walk down it perusing the shrines of glorified individuals. Rather, it's like God's trophy case. It is God's trophy case where he is showing how he took imperfect, improbable, unworthy men and women, and he worked through them to perform his perfect works. So the phrase by faith needs to stand clearly for us in contrast to other things, how did Noah do that? How did he build this boat? He did it by faith, not by cleverness, not by might, not by strength. He did it by faith, which gives all credit and honor and glory to God. Those men and women who accomplished great things for God were able to do that simply because they trusted him. So how would Habakkuk understand this word or this phrase, by faith? I think most likely what he understood in, in this passage, in this book, is like this. He would have understood it in contrast to the people who were described in Habakkuk 11. Here's how God described the Babylonians. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their own God. These people do not trust God they do, they do not have faith in God rather they have faith and trust in their own might or look at habakkuk 116 which describes them further by saying therefore he the babylonians sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich when this kind of person gets gain They look to the wrong thing to give it thanks. They don't give thanks to God who supplies all of our needs. Rather, they give thanks to their net, saying, Thank you, O net, for providing me with luxury. And thank you, O net, for providing me rich food. What has their net ever done? Nothing. Yet they give credit to someone, for they must, and their credit is given to a false god, to an idol. This, by the way, describes all people. We find our glory in ourselves, and we give all honor and thanks to the wrong individuals, the wrong persons. That is idolatry. So Habakkuk probably didn't have a full understanding of this passage, but he would have understood that genuine faith means placing placing your trust completely and wholly in God. So let's summarize what we know so far. In Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, when it says the righteous shall live by his faith, God is saying that there is a group of people that can be referred to as righteous who shall certainly avoid the wrath of God by trusting in him. That's my paraphrase of this passage. So consider what that would look like to Habakkuk. Maybe when he asked God this question, he was asking God, hoping that God would give him a list of things that the nation of Judah could do in order to avoid destruction. What do we need to do, God? What do we need to do to make these Babylonians miss us? Why can't they just jump over us and go right down to Egypt? How can we avoid this coming, pending wrath? But instead of giving a list, God doesn't tell Habakkuk to do anything. Instead, he says to him, have faith. Trust in God. Now, there are some natural questions that should arise for us from this text. First, how does someone meet the criteria necessary to being categorized as a righteous person? How do we do that? Secondly, What role does the law play here? Habakkuk has noted the law is not accomplishing anything. It's paralyzed. It's lame. And thirdly, how then shall we live? And hereby live, I mean, how should we carry ourselves before God and other people? So let's move now to see how this phrase blossoms in the New Testament and see if we can find sufficient answers to those three questions. Earlier, I described a man to you, a man who was incredibly self-righteous, but whose life was gripped by the grace of God. And this man built his entire theology based upon this little phrase from Habakkuk 2.4. And do you know who that was? If you Don't say it out loud, but if you said the answer is Paul, you would be absolutely correct. Let's move forward to the first place in the New Testament we find this line from Habakkuk being quoted in order to see how this little phrase radically transformed the life of Paul. Consider Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Now before we read it, I want to note something here. When you write a paper... When you are seeking to make an argument, what you begin with is what's called a thesis statement. You make a statement that summarizes your entire argument. And what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, is he is summarizing his entire argument for the book of Romans. He is summarizing for us, this is what I will begin saying and will continue saying throughout the remainder of this book. And here's what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Recognize that phrase. Habakkuk 2.4 is the seed that grew up to be the book of Romans. The entire book of Romans is essentially a commentary on this one little phrase. What does it mean that the just or righteous shall live by faith? Now, we often say in this church that the gospel is of first importance, and amen, that is true. And notice here that Paul recognizes this phrase to be a summary of the gospel itself. Paul is going to make the argument that God gives us faith, which causes us to be made righteous so that we will avoid the wrath of God. Then in chapters 12 through 16, he's going to answer the question, how then shall we live? So let's do a very brief survey of of this book to see how he explains it now earlier we read that paul's thesis statement which ends there in the righteous shall live by faith please notice there should not be a period there at the end of that sentence there should be a comma the righteous shall live by faith and then it says for the next words are for please notice that it should flow naturally into these words which we find in verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This reveals to us the reason that we need righteousness and we need one that is not from ourselves. So who are these righteous people? It's definitely not us in our own strength. He immediately refutes the possibility that we are righteous based upon our own efforts. Because he tells us here that if we were relying on our own efforts, then the wrath of God is surely coming for us. Just like in Habakkuk, we see that the wrath of God is coming, and Romans 1 is speaking about something much more harsh and much more terrifying than the Babylonians. God is a warrior, and God is mighty and powerful. He is the last enemy that you would ever want to face. Yet. We are promised that his wrath is being revealed against all who are ungodly, all who are unrighteous, and all who suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. So you might say, well, that's not me. But Paul will, in, in an incredible way, over chapter 1, 2, and 3, reveal that that actually categorizes every single person. We all fall into that group of people. Every last one of us are found in that list. That's why he concludes his thought in Romans 3:10 through 18 this way. He has a tirade of our inability to be classified as righteous. He says, none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes that is a description of everyone there is no one righteous so who can be categorized as righteous remember that's our question how can anyone be classified as a righteous person for the righteous shall live by faith and paul is going to show us something very significant he has basically painted all of humanity now into a corner he is revealed by the holy spirit the wrath of god is coming against all unrighteous and then he proceeded to show that everyone is unrighteous so this is terrible news This is terrible news, but then Paul reveals the good news. Romans 3, 21 through 24 says, "...but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift." through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now there's so much here in this little short passage, we cannot possibly dwell on all of it right now. But what I do want you to hold on to this morning is this. We ask the question, how is it possible for someone to meet the criteria of what it means to be called righteous? And Paul is showing us that the righteousness of God has been manifested Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, means that the one who has faith will have two things. First, we will have peace with God instead of his wrath. We will now have a relationship that is of peace. We will no longer experience wrath. But we will also have righteousness before God. We will live have peace with God, and we will be called righteous, which is an alien righteousness that comes from God. Romans 5, 1-2 explains it this way. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Please understand, Paul is explaining how these things are related. It is because we have the righteousness of God that we can therefore avoid his wrath. He has given us his righteousness. Therefore, we have freedom from his his justice. Notice that we have been justified, how? By faith, which which has given us peace with God. Therefore, as this text says, now we are no longer under wrath. Rather, we are now under grace. Now, if we're not careful here, this can lead us to a little bit of a conundrum. If someone is considered righteous simply by believing, then how does the law play into this whole scenario? Let me, let me clarify what I'm saying here. Uh, a couple years ago, I was out doing evangelism in Flushing, handing out tracts mostly, and um, the next day I went into the church office where I was working at North Shore Baptist Church in Queens, and I listened to the, um, the uh, what do you call it, the recording phone message, voice, voicemail machine, hit play, and there was a man who was just fuming with anger at, at the church. He was so furious and filled with hatred at the gospel message that we had handed him. And he said, thanks a lot. I, uh, I read your tract, and uh, thanks a lot for telling me this, because now I know I can go be a murderer. I can go be, uh, I could go be a killer. I could be a rapist. And then the last second before I die, I can say, Lord, please forgive me, and I'll be fine, and I'll be able to go to heaven. Thanks a lot. Now I know I'm free to do whatever I want. We have to be very careful that that's not what we're getting to here with this question. What does it mean that we have received the righteousness of God, righteousness of God apart from works? Does it mean that we can then do whatever we want? Habakkuk chapter two verse four tells us that the righteous shall live by faith and in the book of romans god is affirming yes the righteous shall live by faith and in habakkuk it tells us the law is paralyzed and in romans it's telling us again the law is paralyzed it is incapable of making you pure but there has always been and there always will be a struggle in the heart of man which desires for us to say i must do something to earn my way to God, I've got to be good enough for God. Which brings us to the next stage of the blooming of this gospel flower in Galatians. Now we could continue to do this in Romans. Paul answers this question in a long form, but in order to answer the question succinctly, let's go to how Paul uses this same phrase Habakkuk 2:4 in in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3:10 3, through 14. Remember, we're looking at the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, and we're asking the question, how does law fit into this scenario? Let's let the word of God give us the clear answer. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Here's where we get the setup. If we are justified by the law, then it would be necessary for us to keep every single law every single time. If you're dangling from a cliff by a chain, it does not matter which link breaks, you're going to fall and you're going to die. Even the most self-righteous person will tell you, I'm not perfect. And they'll say, nobody's perfect, right? But God requires you to say, perfect, I am perfect. And if you fall short of that, then you fall short of the glory of God. Verse 11 continues and says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now Paul is going to be using this here in such a way to contrast legalism and the gospel. Legalism says there's a way to salvation through works. This letter was specifically dealing with the issues of circumcision. People thought, That they would have more love, God would have more love for them if they had performed an outward surgery. They believed that this surgery was necessary to be accepted by God. But God requires holiness. Even our best attempts at righteousness are stained like filthy rags. So thank God that our salvation is not by works of the law, but rather it is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because if it depended on works to get us there, then heaven would be completely void of any human worshippers for all eternity, because none of us can get there. But don't get Paul wrong here. We were all once under the curse of the law. Consider what he says in the next verse, verses 12 through 14. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We were all once under the law, and the curse comes to us not by following it, but Christ, the perfect one, the only person who ever actually followed it, became a curse for us. Now, here's something that Habakkuk never would have seen coming. Down in verse 14, it shows us the promise of our righteousness comes through faith, but that faith is not limited just to the Jewish people. It's not limited just to the the Jews or just to Judah. Rather, he says, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's most of us in this room. So that we might receive the Spirit through faith. How do we receive it? Through faith. So we ask the question in Romans, how does somebody become classified or qualified to be called righteous? And the answer is, by God's grace through faith in Christ. And we ask the question here in Galatians, what about the law? And the answer resounds in a very similar way. No one is justified by works of the law. Rather, only by God's grace through faith in Christ. So our final question is this then, how then shall we live? How shall we act and carry ourselves before the world? Sometimes... It can be a lot easier for us to talk about like the big theological, high theology principles and then not be as excited when it comes down to applying these things to our lives. When we get down to the nitty-gritty, it can be difficult for us to want to actually do them. We can easily say, okay, well, I've been saved. Now I can do whatever I want. Is that what Habakkuk 2.4 is teaching? Are we to understand this verse in such a way that it denies our responsibility to obey Christ? And the answer is, of course, absolutely not. Consider it again through the lens of Habakkuk. Directly after God says that the righteous shall live by his faith, he then proceeds to declare five woes against the wicked. Now, I'm not going to go through them today. If you want to know more about them, consider last week's sermon. But he tells, he tells Habakkuk, this is the, what the wicked people are going to receive, they look like they're succeeding. I'm going to give them judgment. In effect, we could surmise from that passage that those who have faith will live in a way that is different, that is contrary to those who are being cursed in that passage. The righteous person will attempt to honor God. But where it's impl- implicit in Habakkuk, it becomes explicit in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul anticipates this argument, and he refutes it this way. He says, What well, shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? The implied truth there is that if we do sin, grace will abound. But the answer, of course, is by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? And in Galatians, where Paul most strongly opposes legalism and champions the idea of salvation by grace alone, he says in chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." We are saved by grace, and we are called into a life of holiness. So the fourth and final place our phrase can be found today is in Hebrews chapter 10. Now Hebrews is a book that is written to declare the excellencies of Jesus over against the obsolete religion of Judaism. The author is showing the Israelite people over and over and over. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you observed under the old covenant. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the priesthood, the Sabbath, the sacrifices, the temple, and much more. And he's showing them these truths because there are some who had claimed to be Christians. There are some who had come to the church and professed faith in Jesus Christ, and now they were returning into Judaism. It's like my daughter Petra, when she gets a new doll for Christmas. It's beautiful, it's pretty, it's new, it's precious. And she loves it for one day. She, she hugs it and kisses it and covers it up with a blanket and puts a bow on its head for one day. And then she goes right back to her old, disgusting, marker-covered, dirty, naked doll that she's carried around since she was a year old. Except for, unlike Petra's doll, this has eternal consequences. Returning to Judaism has eternal consequences for the, for the audience of the book of Hebrews. The author is lovingly seeking to show the early Jewish believers that there was only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. And only those who persevere to the end are actually genuine believers. And he is pleading with them to see the glories of Jesus and to live for him. Now, once again, the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, is set against the backdrop of wrath. Hebrews stands forever as a warning, do not turn back. Consider Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 29. and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. So now against this backdrop, against the warning of wrath, we see the flower of Habakkuk 2.4 blooming open even wider. This time the author is going to weave together some quotes. So it's not just Habakkuk 2.4, he's going to to weave that together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with a passage from Nahum and a passage from Isaiah. And in Hebrews 10.35-39 we read these words. and preserve their souls. Now notice the contrast here. There are two groups of people. There are those who shrink back and are destroyed, and there are those who persevere and who are not destroyed. There are those who fail to have faith and those who actually have faith, and it is it is played out in their lives by how they live, by how they continue on. So here we get to Hebrews chapter 11 in the very next verse. This is the end of chapter 10. Then we get to Hebrews chapter 11, which, as we spoke about earlier, gives us example after example of men and women who trusted God in the most extreme of all the circumstances in history. And at the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned there was a man, a self-righteous man, a man who was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, whose theology was built around the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. If you answered Paul, you were correct, but you were also correct if you answered Martin Luther. Because Martin Luther came to this text and it radically transformed his life because he had become a monk to be closer to God. He had become a monk because he had promised God that he would do that after he was saved from a lightning storm. And he said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He worked hard at being a monk. He was the hardcore kind of monk that the other monks hated because he was more righteous than them. And he would go into the, the confessional and drive the guy crazy because he would be in there for hours and then he would leave and he'd remember something he forgot. Or he would say, as I was walking out, I was arrogant and prideful in my heart that I was better than you. And he would confess to the guy again and he would confess and confess and confess and never found that he could actually be pure and righteous and holy before God. But When Luther began to study Romans chapter 1, verse 17 in Greek, and he realized that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he said, When I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. And if you're listening to my voice, but you do not know Jesus as your Savior, then I want you to know that there is a way of salvation that has been made available in Jesus Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. And we have been hearing from Habakkuk that you should rightfully be asking yourself this question. How can I possibly stand before God in the judgment? How can I possibly stand before him because I don't meet the qualifications of a righteous person? I in myself am not righteous. So what must I do then to be saved from the wrath that I deserve? And the answer is this, that Jesus Christ, the perfect Holy Son of God, came to be our righteousness. And he lived a perfect life and he died for sinners like you and me so that he might bring many sons to glory. And if you will trust in him, then he will save you. If you believe that he died on the cross and that he rose again for your salvation, then you will be saved. And I hope that you will be in the line of Paul and of Martin Luther. And I hope that this would completely turn your world upside down because this little phrase is the centerpiece of the gospel. I hope that you will trust in Christ and that you will live. And I hope that your life will reflect that you have built your entire belief system on the fact that the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I want to close our time together with two applications that stem directly from what we're considering this morning. And it's this, beginning with this. First, Be humbled by the grace of God. Be humbled by his grace. If you have been saved, if you're sitting here and you are a Christian, it is because you have been saved by grace. And this should lead us away from pride. This should never bring us to a point of self-exaltation. Rather, this should lead us to a place of humility. We should never be comparing ourselves to others and considering ourselves to be spiritually mature or superior It should cause us to be dumbfounded. God, how could you? How could you save such a one like me? How could you send Jesus to die for a wretch like me? So preach to yourself every day. Preach to yourself every day. By faith, Caleb was saved. It wasn't by my works. It wasn't because of my my intellect. It wasn't because I just happened to figure it out. It's by faith I was saved through grace. It was not by works. I cannot boast. And I have life because I've been given life. I will avoid the judgment because God has allowed me to avoid the judgment. I have the gift of Jesus Christ simply because God loved me and saved me. I am a Christian because he gave me the gift of faith and repentance. Say those things to yourself. Do you believe them? Remind yourself of those things every day, and it will lead you away from pride, and it will lead you to humility. It's probably possible for me to stand up from a prayer like that. It's possible for me to jump immediately back into pride but it's far less likely. So let your mind soak in the reality that the fireball of God's wrath has been turned aside from you and it has fallen on Christ. And now you have Jesus, the treasure of the universe, as your friend and as your brother. So let the phrase by faith bring you to your knees in thankfulness to God. Now we're going to see next week exactly how this plays out in terms of leading us to worship. Um, We'll see how this causes us to adore God. And uh, it shows us how how Habakkuk turned from questioning God and maybe even doubting God to rejoicing in what God is doing. So we're going to see that more next week. But here's our second application for the day. Do not shrink back. Now, those whom God justifies, he also glorifies. There are many people, though, who will say to him, Lord, Lord, whom he will respond and say, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And I am convinced that there are millions of people in churches right now, all around the world, who are going to stand before God and they're going to believe that they are saved. And they're placing their faith in something other than Jesus Christ. They have made a profession, but they have shrunk back and they will be destroyed. And I am preaching to you today so that you can be warned, so that you will never experience that in the day of judgment. I earnestly hope that each and every one of you will be in heaven forever. But the saved will live by their faith. So we must carry on striving after Christ, living for Him. There is a day coming when God will separate the, the wheat from the chaff, when He will separate the sheep from the goats. But please notice that you cannot do this on your own. You cannot have endurance that you need in faith on your own. We do not simply conjure it up out of thin air. So after showing us examples of faithful men and women in Hebrews chapter 11, I want to show you what Hebrews 12 tells us about how we can do this. How can can we be like them? How can we follow in their footsteps? How can we live by faith? And here's the answer, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now that's the command, but the question is, how? How do we do that? And the answer is straightforwardly presented directly to us in verse 2. Again, there should be no period, just a comma. Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So set your eyes on him. Set your eyes on him. The power of the Christian life comes from fixing your eyes on Jesus. He is the author of your faith. If you are a Christian, it's because he gave you faith and he is the perfecter of your faith. You will only grow in your faith in him if it is growing through him. So look to Jesus and delight in the gospel that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we asked the question in Romans, how does one become righteous? And the answer we received was by God's grace through faith in Christ. And we asked the question in Galatians, what about the law? And the answer is a resounding, no one is justified by works of the law. Rather, we are justified by God's grace through faith in Christ. And now we come to the question, how then shall we live? How should we continue? How do we carry out God's call on our lives? How can we possibly endure the call on our lives to live for Jesus? And the answer should be very familiar. Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 10 through 12 is teaching us that it is by grace through faith in Christ. So I simply want to plead with you. Examine yourselves before the Lord. Do not shrink back, but press on in the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in Christ. And in faith, the righteous shall live. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that your word is so beautiful and so big and massive and has so many implications for our lives. God, I thank you that this little tiny phrase that could be easily overlooked in the book of Habakkuk, that we could just blow by it so rapidly, truly is... So rich for us, that it is indeed the center of the gospel that we have believed, that it, it it teaches us what it means, that we are not righteous on our own, but we need your righteousness, and that we have received it only by grace through faith in Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live by faith, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, help us to be like him because of his power working through us. So God, I pray that if anyone here is discouraged, if anyone here is having a difficult time in their walk with Christ. If anyone here is struggling as they they seek to follow him, you would give them endurance by helping them to fix their eyes on you, who strengthens them. And God, I pray that if anyone here is proud and arrogant and who is walking on their own strength and they, they believe they can do it on their own, God, I pray that you would break their heart, cause them to see their desperate need of you. And God, I especially pray for anyone here who does not know you. Please, Lord, open their eyes to the gospel. Let them understand what it means that they need your righteousness, that they might believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.